You're listening to CISO Secret Podcast, brought to you by Checkpoint. And now, welcome your host, Grant Asplund. Welcome, everyone, and thank you so very much for joining me for another episode of CISO Secrets. Man, am I excited to be back at the mic with you today. So, you know, this is where we talk to the leaders of the cybersecurity world uh, from all over the world. There seems to be no more important role today in the industry, certainly the digital side, than the CISO, the CIO, the chief security officer. And and I'm so fortunate that I get a chance to talk to some of the brightest, most amazing executives all around the world. And today I'm super excited because let me just go through briefly the guy's background. I mean, holy moly, way back in the Let's say late 90s, he got in, it looked like consultant, help desk, consultant. He's been in healthcare and insurance. Uh, he's, he's been director of client server operations, vice president, assistant vice president, board of directors. Hey, my goodness. I mean, a storied career, to say the least. Multiple advisor, investor roles. Uh, and most recently, if I can get up to the top of this long list of his accomplishments, it's venture partner, advisory board member. And for it looks like the last decade plus, he's been at the Dana Foundation. And in his current role for the past seven years, Chief Information Officer, Chief Information Security Officer, so CIO, CISO. Uh, super excited today to have Jim Rutt on the program. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Grant, for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, this is really great. So holy moly, I mean, all I could do is just rattle. All, there's, this is quite impressive. So why don't you take the ball here, uh, Jim, and just... Tell a little bit about, you know, the course of your career and how you found yourself where you are, and, and we can kind of move it into whatever you'd like to talk about. Yeah, super, Grant. So the ironic thing is that wasn't the beginning of my career in the late 90s. I actually started in marketing in the early 90s when I got mm. out of college. So where do you go from marketing to technology? It's a very interesting jump. And I think a lot of it was very fortuitous when you think about the what happened in the mid-90s, the rise of the Internet, the rise mm -hmm. of all these new technologies. And I kind of just saw that and said, you know what, this is, this is a direction I really think is going to be exciting. And boy, has it ever. Boy. <laughs> I could have never guessed some of the opportunities that would have come my way, uh, you know, in the past. 25, 26 right. years as right. a result. Very exciting. That's So that's really interesting. And so what kind of, just curious, marketing, product marketing, corporate marketing, field marketing? What Was there a particular area of marketing you were focused on? So I was the guy that did all the internal marketing. It was a import-export company in New Jersey. And I was the guy that did all the internal marketing and did the trade shows uh, very exciting. You know, it's, I, I always get a, I always get kind of a flashback every time I go to like an RSA or a black hat thinking about the time that I was working the trade show booths and right. it was a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. In your industry. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, so it was about 98 when I uh, happened to get into security specific. So that timing is comparable, although it was 83 when I, got into the industry by luck, couldn't spell computer. But I can certainly appreciate uh, the, the, the massive transformation that took place when we went from everybody being in their own fishbowl. Uh, you were using Token Ring. I was using IPX, right? And, and then all of a sudden, uh, those fishbowls went away and we were in the ocean uh, with predator and prey, right? That that was the internet, and it 
it was really the birth of the bubble and, and, and the firewall VPN market went crazy, right? Oh, yes. I mean, to see, to even think about some of the downstream impacts in terms of network security, when mm. we're trying to grapple with network standards, I mean, you, you elucidated it perfectly. It's, it, it's amazing to see all these different, you know, architectures that we had to grapple with in the late 90s and to finally see it converge. Very right. satisfying. Right. So I, just, I'm, I, I, I have to ask Jim, coming from marketing uh, in a different industry, what in, I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and jumping into the now ocean of cybersecurity, uh, how did you manage to navigate and swim those waters to get, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the foundation, the knowledge, the uh, just understanding and, and technical aptitude you need to have to be in your role? So it's a great story. So I was about four or five years in the marketing and realized, you know, I really, really wasn't going to be a long-term career option for me. I just, I enjoyed some of the accomplishments, but I just really, it wasn't my cup of tea necessarily. So I started mm -hmm. looking out and again, we're talking about 95, 94. And I started looking around and seeing Obviously, the birth of the internet, some of these other smaller networks like AOL and, and Prodigy and CompuServe. Yep. I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if I can make a career out of this. And I happened to open a Sunday paper talking, and one of the ads was MCSE training or Microsoft Certified mm. Systems Engineer training. I said, I wonder what that would be. You know, what, what, you know, could I make, could I base a career on that? So I contacted this small training facility in New Jersey, and I said, you know, what, do, is there any prerequisites, what are the costs, et cetera? And at the time, I think for about four months of training, it was about $5,000. And $5,000 back in 96 was a lot more than it is today, of course, given all the macro conditions that we're Heck yeah. <laughs> I mean, so... Just it in the last couple of years, that's went up substantially. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we appreciated that much, Grant, you know? Right. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll write the check. And it was a big cut for me personally. Yeah. A big time commitment. It was working my job Monday through Friday and going to this training on the weekends. And after about six months of that and a series of about six certification exams, I got my MCSE and I said, okay. Now let me go out and see if I can get a job. So the facility that I had taken the exams right here in New Jersey, I went. I literally after the last exam went up to the desk and said, "Do you have any jobs that I might fit? You know, I don't have any experience, but I have this certification." And I remember the receptionist saying, "Hold on a second. She ran in the back, got a recruiter out, and the recruiter said, "We'll find something for you. Don't worry." And that's what started it out. Got my first job as a help desk analyst and basically tried to get my feet wet and figure out, you know, how I was going to build a career out of this. That's fascinating. And yeah. So about four years later, I got into more consistent engineering jobs. And, and then in 2001, this is getting towards uh, the focus in cyber, mm -hmm. uh, I got my first management job. And that was at uh, Emblem Health here in New York. And so I said, okay. So at the same time, uh, the HIPAA uh, regulations were starting to come into effect. So there was a lot of discussion around regulation, regulatory and cyber in general. And we really didn't have a defined security department there. We didn't have mm -hmm. a CISO as we know it today. We just happened to have somebody that was somewhat focused on physical security and they were kind of thrust into the role. And I had had to that point a few years of technical experience, obviously. Right. And so he had asked me, uh, what do you know about cybersecurity? And I said, I really don't hmm. know that much. I, I it wasn't really it didn't have the prominence that it does today thanks to the mainstream media right so we kind of i kind of helped him out from the technical side as he was learning how to do it from the regulatory and governance side wow so the cyber 
portion of my career really started about 20, 22 years ago. <laughs> and so in every role since then, I've had some measure of cyber responsibilities. Got a little more focused with it, I would say, starting about 11, 10, 11 years ago at Dana. Started taking some certifications, training, getting involved in the greater ecosystem. And the timing, again, couldn't have been more fortuitous. No kidding. As we're, see, as we're seeing the prominence that this whole ecosystem and the, the challenges that we're, we're facing, they're really front and center in my mind. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. So for the last, it appears, uh, decade anyway, um, chief technology officer, move into uh, CIO, CISO. Uh, talk about that journey a little bit and, and how that CT, you know, the chief technology officer maybe laid a foundation for where you are now. Sure. To do that, I'd probably have to go back to the prior role. So okay. it was the same organization. I've been at yep. the Dana Foundation for about 13, it'll be 13 years in December. So I'd actually started off as a director level uh, role, taking back an outsourced technology department. So it was essentially... Uh, everything had been outsourced from cyber to regular tech, et cetera. So we had brought it back. And again, you talk about a seismic shift, as I talked about in the early 90s. In the early 2010s, the this, this shift was to cloud computing. So I was able to ride yet another wave by this time being a little more proactive or in terms of taking a look at what we had at Dana and saying, I think the old paradigms of these on-premise architectures are not going to work based, especially in New York, yep. where we had a number of business continuity type of situations over the past 20 years, et cetera. So, you know, one of the things I'll tell you real quick, Jim, that I've said for a long, long time, and I really believe it's true. It doesn't matter when you get into this industry, you're getting into the beginning of something. And that's one of the things that makes it so exciting. And you've cited a couple of great examples. As evidenced by, I'd say, the next major macro shift with AI, but we can get to right? that in a bit. Yeah. So, yeah. So we performed our cloud, 100% cloud transformation, finished that up in 2016, 2017, along with some pretty innovative cyber controls as that became more in, in vogue and as these types of controls evolved and got a little bit more effective and 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 well positioned for what I call the the cloud native era, which is hmm. we're well into right now. Yeah, probably gonna so, be that way for a while, wouldn't you think? Oh, I would say so. I I, yeah. I I see the pros and cons of all these arguments and the pros vastly outweigh the cons no question uh, about it's it. i the image i always put up uh, jim is is a water wheel in a river uh it, you know and i ask how many people have one of these behind their house powering everything uh, inside it, it's just it's such an easier model to plug in. And I guess unless you're, you know, some of the biggest of the big, because it seems there has been some repatriation, so to speak, with regards to coming back on-prem. Uh, there's no question a hybrid will, will certainly prevail for the big, big companies. But I think overall, most people are going to want to just plug in and pay the bill. I I would say so as well. I think, and I and I even would would posit that a lot of these hybrid architectures, I think they'll eventually evolve into more of a a pure cloud native mm. infrastructure. There might be hesitancy or a lack of capital investment that might be encumbering that right now. But I think most folks they understand, especially I think the the pandemic kind of put a put an exclamation point on this is that the maximum amount of flexibility is, is going to be necessary to be able to, uh, to adapt and to embrace some of these other new major shifts that right. I foresee in the coming decade. Totally. Totally agree. It seems, um, 
the whole cloud model, uh, SaaS model, it, it, I don't think anybody will dispute that's going to prevail. But I do also think uh, it's it's because of the explosion in bandwidth connectivity compute that it's really going to start to blur the lines. You're, you're, you're not going to really know. It's just, it's always going to be there, you know, yeah. uh, whether it's, whether it's computing locally, whether it's computing uh, in a data center, in a cloud, whatever, right. All, all those lines really where before you had a very definitive, it was really noticeable. You were dialing up to connect. I think the days are are quickly diminishing where you even can differentiate where you're at. You're just always on. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and as you mentioned, all those necessary prerequisites to get to that point, better bandwidth, better compute, and more flexibility in terms of application and system architectures. Right. It's, it, I'm curious to hear what your thought is on the trend not only uh, to cloud, which we've been uh, talking about, but the the move to more services, right? Outs, you know, call it outsourcing, call it enhancing, but it seems like that's also a pretty significant growth area for organizations saying, hey, I just don't have the technical expertise for this threat hunting or uh, other services that are available. Where are you guys on that? Primarily in cyber, I would agree, especially with some of these more, and you mentioned it, like threat hunting, threat intelligence, some of these more esoteric needs that these organizations need. They may not feel the need to have to invest in that to own these things in-house. Uh, right. But in terms of, in general, in terms of outsourcing, I've seen, I've seen the wave go up and down a bit. So, and, and I think I mentioned at the outset here that the main reason why I was brought on at data was to re-insource a lot of this, uh, a lot of the tasks, a lot of the the uh, disciplines that had been out outsourced. Right, bring it back. Exactly. I think targeted outsourcing will always have a place, and it's not going anywhere. I think I'm pretty sure that you know an en masse type of outsourcing for most organizations, it's it's definitely the road to. Uh, the difference for a lot of these folks because I don't really think they understand uh, the the impact that a lot of these things can have. Uh, it's not just a cost benefit analysis. I mean, there's other dynamics involved. And with cyber, I think it, it, it's getting a lot more acute. I think I'm surprised that a good hard look hasn't been taken industry wide on this because of all the different. Uh, these crazy attacks that keep coming. It's very difficult mm -hmm. to understand an indifferent kind of response to, to this. And where I think, you know, again, the esoteric pieces, it, it may not make sense, but I think in general, in terms of security operations, et cetera, that has a place for, I would say, most organizations, not all, but I would say of any material size or regulatory or compliance uh, encumbered organizations. So you're saying uh, the SOC services are attractive or that they're going to have their own SOC? Well, I think it's it's understanding what you want out of those SOC services. Mm -hmm. there, are certain, there are certain elements in these SOC services that are, are particularly appealing, like what I would call like tier one type of services. But my question is, as artificial intelligence and machine learning be, uh, continue to improve, how much of this stuff will even need to be outsourced and just plainly be automated and kept in-house? It's going to be an interesting push and pull dynamic mm -hmm. there because that's been a lot of these SOC outsourcing companies' bread and butter. Is right. We'll take all the tier one and the easy stuff off your plate, maybe give you an option to do some tier two or tier three engineering and, and threat hunting and forensics type capabilities. How far will automation void by AI and ML? Uh, how much is that going to change the dynamic? It won't happen right away, but five to 10 years, you could certainly make an argument that it would have an impact. No question. 
No. And, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, this whole phenomenon of AI that uh, we're all hearing and talking about chat, GPT, large language, uh, multimodal models, you know, um, machine learning has been around since the 50s. You know, it's not new, but um, I saw a video. I don't know if you saw it, Jim. It's the, uh, it was called the AI Dilemma, and it was published by the Center for Humane Technology. Highly encourage anybody, everybody I speak with to watch this video. It's an hour and seven, nine minutes long. So it's, it's a serious commitment, but I'm telling you, it's, a fascinating. Have you have you seen it? No, I've just made a note to see it right after you, this. <laughs> you have you have to watch it. I'm I'm not kidding because it it does a fantastic job, really explaining why is it such a big deal now. We've been doing it for so long, and it really occurred in 2017 when we went to everything being language, and as soon as it all became language, it all became in one bucket. Uh, and they do a, a much better job explaining it. But I really encourage it because they do a fascinating job. They they suggest that this is the second contact with AI, the first contact we've already been through, and that's the social networking algorithms and uh, AI they've put into, as they call it, it, it was a race to the bottom of your brainstem. That's exactly what they say. And now the next connection uh, is for intimacy, not in the physical sense, obviously, but in knowing you better than anyone else. And it's really, it, it's, it's uh, while it's, it's, it's intriguing and amazing, it's also concerning, at least for me. Yeah, it's it's an interesting parallel too, right? You made mention of social social networks, mm -hmm. and now we're dealing with generative AI type of systems. And so, that's from a technical parallel, that's like from graph databases to vector Right. So, <laughs> the the intimacy portion, I totally understand. I think that could definitely be an enhancement because I think. Most of the leadership uh, tomes that I've read speak to not just knowledge about the business from a technologist or practitioner perspective, but business intimacy. That's become a yep. phrase I've seen quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this will help a lot of these folks to enhance that, that portion of intimacy. Uh, yeah, and certainly there's aspects of uh, uh, business intimacy, if you will, that, you know, I see that as baselines and trend lines and real uh, 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 indicators of the heartbeat, if you will, or the pulse of your business. And once being able to see and clearly establish those, it'll be much easier to identify anomalies uh, that deviate from that, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I just was on a roundtable from a CISO perspective. Mm -hmm. And what I stepped up and said, listen, as CIOs, we, we kind of got this about 10 to 15 years ago that we had to be deeply involved in the operations and the understanding of how our business and respective businesses work. And it's interesting to hear CISOs start to finally come to the realization that they need to end it. And, I'm, and to me, that's kind of a marker that that maybe this is one of the reasons why we're seeing some of the struggles with some of these these incidents that we've been reading about in the paper. And some of them have been pretty dramatic. But no, it's maybe yep. we don't have a good, as, you know, from a security leadership perspective, maybe we're, we're, we're kind of assuming that that's either the CIO's issue or the, or the remainder of the leadership team. And I think we, you know, it's much more than just reporting to the board on our posture and trying to justify our capital expenditures. It's demonstrating that we know how the business works from our perspective and how we can enhance it, not yep. just being unnecessary. Yep. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, for me, I guess one of the concerning aspects of AI, and I think I could apply this to just about anything, uh, you know, when you have you when you have outcomes that you cannot explain how you got them to me that's kind of like okay well we should probably stop and understand what's happening and as you'll see in this video that i referred to there's some startling things happening that they can't explain and um I think it's that part that concerns me the most. Unintended consequences. Yes, right. And yes. certainly they, 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 they do a great job referring to and, and citing those unintended consequences from the first contact, which is the social networking aspect and all of the bulimia and body image issues and all the other things that are happening uh, with our teenagers. Now extrapolate that into the so-called generative AI era, and oh. what would what would proceed after that? Exactly. Uh, this is and this is yeah. their point exactly, and it's it's why they're. I think I I think you will agree after watching it. They're of the minds that we should tap the brakes. Maybe we should kind of uh, put a little bit more controls around this. But in fact, the opposite is happening, right? In yes. fact, I could show you right now, Jim, uh, there's a website and it's called there's an AI for that.com. <laughs> and and it, you wouldn't believe the uh, hundreds and hundreds of implementations of AI and the number of large language model AI uh, uh, that is out now. It's it's amazing. I'll send you. Um, have you ever heard of the website informationisbeautiful.net? I am I am learning quite a bit here. I'm taking I'll, notes. <laughs> I'm gonna I'll, I'll send you it. It's fascinating, and they've got one resource that actually provides, and it's a live living document they're continuing to add to that has a list of. Uh, I won't say all because I don't think it's all, but many many. Uh, generative uh, large language models, and they give insight into how big they are, uh, what they've been trained on, uh, how large the parameters are. Uh, it's really, really great. And then, of course, uh, all the links to those various AI. So I'll send you that. I think you might enjoy that. That's super. You know, that's that brings up yet another great point. How are we supposed we're already struggling in terms of keeping up with our attack surfaces, all possible threats, indicators of compromise just for the regular uh, world that we've known for yeah. the past couple of decades? How are we now supposed to keep up with this this new world, which is expanding at a just past the geometric rate? And to figure out how much, you know, how much effort is this going to take extrapolated out? Yep. This is this is incredible. I mean, I, I, I you know, to uh, quote an old adage we've all heard before, we're going to have to fight fire with fire. Uh, you know, AI, you know, uh, my company, our company, Checkpoint, we have some 40 plus AI engines in place, several patented that just can do what humans take forever to do, right? Checking domain registrations and all kinds of other things. And so uh, we are continuing to evolve. And I really do think it's the only way, very similarly to uh, we've all, you probably know even more about this. And I imagine you might have examples from the neuroscience world, but certainly in the world of breast cancer and mammographies, uh, a, a mammogram analyzed by a well-educated AI is far, far, uh, it, they're much better at recognizing a malformation than the human eye. So oh, I would agree. Yeah, I would yeah, totally I mean, agree. That, that they've proven. So I think my point is we're going to have to start to get AI turned on the bad guy's uh, in every creative way we possibly can, because that's what they're doing to us. So 
you bring up another great point, which is how are we going to leverage this and but what are the resources it's going to take? Uh, obviously, to train a model, it takes tons of data, tons yep. of compute power, and just, in some cases, millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Where is, this invest, where is the investment going to come from that or, or repurposed? And also the talent. Obviously, we've been struggling with with regular security talent, you know, from, from the low levels to the high, impact players to leadership. Now we've got this new whole new world. Where are we going to source this talent from if we're still struggling to fill the gaps from what we knew prior to this, you know, this explosion of new technologies? Yeah. And for me, I, I'm going to go full circle now and go back. And I really... I see a blend happening that, you know, almost like I used to outsource all the basic stuff. Um, I think it's going to turn the other way, but I'm going to, it's like, I'm going to have a guardian angel. I think that large uh, service organizations are going to provide these kind of, I'm going to watch over you for you. You, you still have your controls and security in place in your network, in your organization, but there's an added uh, layer, if you will, above. Uh, and I think you're going to see more and more of those services. And these are going to be large organizations that see immense amounts of data that are able to then extrapolate from that uh, better defenses for organizations that are connected into this uh, world. I, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, if that were to happen, that would raise a number of questions. It's an interesting uh, position. But at some point, are we comfortable having two, three, four of these huge repositories or the power of having those huge repositories concentrated into into a very small number of hands? And the other point is, who guards the guards, right? It's the old prison <laughs> prison uh saying right who's watching the people that are supposed to be watching the hen house right and when it gets into only if yeah i i it's a conundrum but the fact of the matter is most organizations don't have the resources to collect and have available the amount of uh, data global perspective that they really need that's why you know my expectation is they're going to look to services to augment that yeah, and I think, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, these kind of corporate data banks that have been employing early versions of of enhanced intelligence or decision support have been around for so long. It's not an entirely new concept. I just think the social proof of it coming to light is raising those types of ethical and practical types of questions. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I mean, we all know since the whole 9-11 thing and some of the laws that got passed, I mean, there really isn't anything that someone's not looking at, right? Yeah, true. And and uh, so, I mean, we're kind of fooling ourselves to think that there isn't somebody over there. I guess uh, I I want um, in my world to have somebody that I want to be having that capability, but we certainly know those capabilities are out there, right? Well, they've been out there, which makes me a little skeptical of some of these statements. If we're kind of treading into the privacy realm, how private truly is your data? How, 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 how well protected is that data when you know so many different organizations, both private and public have been looking at this, regardless of whether you've given your consent yeah, you know, has Pandora's box been open? Sure. And and well, certainly, it seems like every time we think we've got everything figured out, a new exploit and vector is exposed. I.e., supply chain, right? <laughs> uh, uh, things like um, the SaaS uh, vendors that we subscribe to. So, to your point, uh, as we have become more connected globally, we've also subsequently exposed ourselves equally as much in many instances. True. No, I I totally agree. And it's interesting you mentioned supply chains. So I think about regular supply chains, software supply chains, all these things that 
finally we're starting to get great technologies, great controls, great conversations happening about these things when I think a lot of these things were a lot of these situations were handled myopically and, and essentially as a siloed problem. You were in an organization, you were in charge of cyber for that organization. That's that was your fortress. That's what you were supposed to defend. And now I think the interconnectedness of everything via software supply chains, API connections, buoyed by SaaS, you know, adoption yep. and all these other things. Finally, I think we're starting to look at the technical debt around security around these things. And we're starting to, we're starting to get there. At least they've got the exposure, but uh, still a little ways to go, but I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by the, by the uh, development of the controls around this and, and what we're seeing in innovations around this. So we're well, getting there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think, um, you know, I often uh, talk about how, you know, when we got lured into this place called the internet, you know, it was kind of sold to us like, Hey man, come on, free love, baby. <laughs> Clothing optional. You can go anywhere, do anything, be anonymous. I mean, come on, it's Woodstock. Or, I mean, it's the internet, right? I mean, it, it literally was that way. And then uh, we've been trying to uh, uh, fix the plane uh, ever since uh, we took off because what we really wanted is we wanted the opera. You know, we didn't want Woodstock. We wanted a proper dress code, have a ticket stub sitting in the right seat, right? All these uh, controls and protocols. And uh, I think it's been a real interesting challenge for the industry as we move to, you know, things like zero trust and least privilege and uh, all these other trends that uh, really are or had we started out understanding we were building the backbone for every business in the, on the planet, we may have done some things differently. Yeah, you know, it, it, it reminds me of a quote from Bill Gates, of all people, in the late 90s, when he was asked why Microsoft kind of was a little late in terms of addressing the Internet in general. And his, his response was he didn't think it would gain any kind of uh, any kind of momentum because of the fact that it wasn't secure. And I thought that was very interesting looking back now. Yeah. And what you just said, you're absolutely right. We're, we've been playing a constant framework catch up yep. of trying to figure out what's going to work best when we should have thought about that from the outset. <laughs> we, we just, it was like we started out, it was, should have been left, right. And we started out right, left, you know, and, and it, it, it's been difficult to get uh, back into the right cadence. And I'd love to hear what you think about this. We've been in the biz, uh, security-related anyway, for about the same amount of time, Jim. And, and certainly in the early days, it was, hey, let's get a firewall. Let's get a VPN. Uh, I mean, that was kind of the basic uh, steak and potatoes that you needed to get started in this whole thing. And so you'd do a bake-off that was arguably best of breed. And as the industry has evolved and grown and the use cases have expanded, we continue to have bake-offs with what's the best, what's Gartner say is the best, what's Forrester say is the best, let's do a bake-off. And now, some 20 years later or more, uh, what we've concocted is this patchwork that doesn't really work as fluidly as... We do. I know I cite my own uh, self using my iPhone and my Mac, and I can task switch from my phone to my Mac just all, you know, seamlessly. And it seems like that's where we're still getting caught because we've created this defense that's uh, maybe not completely homogeneous in its ability to share data all across the environment, right? It doesn't always share. And so I, um, I think it's why you've seen the trend towards consolidation uh, of your stack uh, being quite popular with the analysts. And 
So I'm just curious to hear what you think about this whole notion of of consolidating the stack and and uh, moving maybe to looking more holistically at your security fabric, your security ecosystem, instead of individual use cases to protect them all. Sure. So now I'd have to put my venture partner hat on and say, uh, yes, absolutely. These are the things that funders are looking for. They're looking for more platformized offerings as opposed to best of breed because of the trend that you just mentioned. A lot of these these security chiefs are looking for an easier way to manage everything. I mean, it's a natural kind of knee-jerk reaction. But I think what's more interesting is how did we get to this patchwork kind of situation that we've gotten into? And I think it's interesting to, to kind of analyze that because it may form the basis for a future trend. And, and you look at, number one, I mean, just the opportunity in the the market size was the was the precipitator of all these VCs funding this just wide swath of innovative startups, and it's great to see them. They're definitely needed, but they also added a bit of confusion into the marketplace as to what risks they truly cover, which has now become this patchwork, as you stated, of solutions that may or may not be overlapping with each other. And that's causing a lot of confusion because. But they're going to send you uh, an alert. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they may or may not overlap, but they'll send you an alert. Sure. And and you won't. It's an alert. It's it's a high priority alert. And and every. I didn't mean to interrupt you. (laughs) Oh no worries. I mean every alert requires another another new uh, solution. (laughs) (laughs) It seems that way. Sure. So. Yeah, after all this cacophony of, of, of solutions and, and all these things, I think a lot of CISOs are starting to step back and say, you know, maybe it's worth my while to look from a platform perspective. And then with the eventual consolidation in the marketplace, we'll start to gain some of these, these features that map a little bit more finely to some of these other risks that we're buying point solutions for. I think it might be a little bit of that fatigue. I still think, you know, innovations that are coming out now, especially early to mid-stage, they certainly have a place in the market, no question. Uh, Do they have it across the board? That's uh, That remains to be seen. You know, one of the things that I've been reading a few headlines about the likelihood of a consolidation within the industry. I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are there. Oh, it's inevitable. There's just way, I mean, in some subsectors of of some of these controls, there are 40 to 50 folks vying for a piece of the pie, and there's just not enough market to sustain all these folks. It's mm-hmm. inevitable. I mean, it, and again, the, the, these were largely precipitated by the amount of uh, venture cap and private equity investment in these areas. So yep. it's leveled off a little bit, but it's it hasn't dropped off as as would be perceived by by folks not necessarily tracking it very very closely. Yeah. There's still going to be a market for these solutions. I just wonder what the expected life cycle of some of these things are going to be moving forward is knowing that the first round is fairly, I mean, relatively easy to, to raise. But once you start having to match it against uh, annual revenue figures and other metrics. Delivery, uh, execution. Delivery, execution, all that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, being able to read the market at a certain point in your life as a, as a startup. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the easier way might just be to take the the exit if it's available to you. Right, right, right. Well, certainly economic forces are uh, coming into play. We were talking about it uh, jokingly at the top, you know, inflation certainly here and, and rearing its ugly head. Uh, and And I think also there's been a change in the the whole motion on how I reach you 
And and when I say I and you, I mean I cyber sales rep uh uh du jour you CISO. Because you know, many are not back in the office. It, it no one answers their phone unless it's a number they know or it's in their phone book, right? And uh, it's it's tough to get in front. Of, how, how does someone get through to you? How how would I be able? How would I reach Jim if I was a new sales rep at ABC company and wanted to tell you or, and I wanted to get your attention. That's changed and it's become much more challenging. Yes. So I think, and again, it's a function of what I just talked about, the plethora of solutions out there. You've got a plethora of outbound marketing to the right. point where I don't know of any cyber leader out there that answers the phone at all. Because no way, our cell phone numbers are all out there. Our emails yeah. are con- are clogged and overloaded. Our LinkedIn is getting to be a point where it's almost unreadable. Yeah. Uh, so your question as to how would somebody try to reach out to me? It's one of two ways: either have somebody that I know refer you to me, or try to build a relationship based on a common ground. And when I talk about that is similar to what I'm doing here. I mean, ask me to come discuss a pertinent topic that's peripheral to your solution. Uh, in other ways through conferences, I think, but not just, you know, walking by each other, obviously. It's, it's, right. it's, it's meeting, meeting us as practitioners midway. I mean, we are yep. willing to make make uh, honest and uh, genuine relationships with, and you know, with pretty much anybody, including we know the need of uh, solution providers in our environment. We need to have those kinds of relationships. I just yep. think the social contract got a little way out of whack, thinking you could just throw a bunch of marketing outbound and people would flock to you. You could and send you a link and, and you'd meet me on a camera. And uh, exactly. that was that. And then we're in. We're gonna have you as a customer. Uh, yeah, I just there's just too many too many folks looking for your time and not enough time in a day. Even for somebody like myself, which is, you know, again, I work in different areas of the of the ecosystem, so I am interested in looking at, at these types of uh, innovative solutions out there, right? Or whatever. But even even with that genuine. Uh, you know, uh, willingness to do that, it's hard. I can't schedule everybody in, you know, going nine, ten hours in a day, or no doubt, hours in a day. And there's only so much you can right. do, and, and, and some genuine outreach is going to get lost through the doors. It's, it's understanding yep. you have to build a relationship in the long term as well. I think it's not just for this particular product that you're trying to sell, it's if you're making a commitment to the industry and working in this ecosystem, the benefits of, 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 a, of a long-term approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I heard you kind of faded off a little bit there. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's okay. But I, I, I agree. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in trust. Yes. It, I mean, I think one of the, if not the single most important things I need to do with you is I have to establish an endear trust. Uh, you, you, you need to trust me, even if it's just at the very beginning and we're just talking, you know, there has to be some trust. And I'm not saying, you, you know, anybody just, you can just get that. But I really think that that's something you have to try to earn uh, because, that makes a big difference. And I think your point also is spot on. If I want to get to someone, probably the most effective way is to get a recommendation from someone they trust uh, for an introduction, right? Yeah, I, I agree. But at every point of this as well, Grant, you have to figure out how you're going to add value. 
prior to even making this type of outreach. What is valuable to that, to the to your target, your prospect, whatever you want to call the 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 other end of that relationship? And if you can have a deep understanding of where, and it takes a little bit of research. It's much more than going down a cold call list. If you have an understanding based on the the types of relationships that that person has and try to extrapolate what would be important. If you can bring something of value to the table, I mean, there'll be very few times where I'll, I'll say, I don't want to meet you. Yeah, no doubt. Adding value makes a big difference, a big difference. Just like you did today uh, (laughs) by being, by being the guest on, on uh, CISO secrets, Jim, I I, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation and uh, some of your wisdom and insights. So thank you very much for uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, Grant, it, thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation immensely. Thank you so much. I'll definitely uh, follow up with uh, some of the resources that I mentioned. I'll send you some links and uh, let's connect on LinkedIn for sure. And again, uh, thank you very, very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I thought a fabulous episode talking with a very seasoned, very experienced CIO, CISO, Jim Rutt from Dana.org. Is it, how is it, do you call it Dana organization, Dana corporation? What is it? The official name is the Charles A. Dana Foundation. Our website is www.dana.org, O-R-G. And we just we just rebranded, so it's brand new as of last week. Brilliant. Check it out. Thank you for, for uh, that clarification, Jim. Again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining, listening in. Uh, please share, tell your friends, like us, subscribe. And we'll look forward to having you back on the next episode of CISO Secrets. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Grant. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share with your friends and colleagues.